1: Well, hello and welcome everyone. Welcome to the China shop. We're so glad you made it here today. I'm shopkeeper Dan with me as always is Kyle creator of financial Kyle, how's your day going?
0: Uh, not too bad. Uh, took, had one good trade this morning. Uh, missed a couple other ones that could have worked out nicely, but we don't care about that. We have uh, a fantastic guest who's maybe a little bit off the beaten track that we usually follow.
1: Yes, but uh, that just makes me all the more excited for it. Today, folks, we are proud mm-hmm. to be joined by none other than Micah Kessel from Empathable.com. Micah, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great, and I'm glad that I'm off the beaten path because, you know, being a trailblazer <laughs> is, is what this world is all about, right? I mean, uh, uh, we've got yes. to do something with the time we've got. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Being, being different means you just stand out, right? Yeah, yeah. As, as
0: well as we can. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's that
2: pink tie on a front.
0: <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do then? Because it's not, uh, this isn't going to be our typical, you know, tell us about your investment strategies.
2: Yeah, no. Absolutely. You know, I was giving a keynote for um, the ESG Conference of Pensions and Investments a couple of months ago. And, um, you know, standing in front of a room of, of institutional investors talking about how their team, how they can be, you know, essentially voting with their dollars on organizations and leaders that are creating environments that that have empathy um, can be can be a hard case for some people to understand, hmm. but I think that I hope that by the end of this hour, or whatever time we have together today, that we can we can make that case that we can all understand why um, things that we often consider soft skills like empathy and creating a, a, you know, an environment of belonging can ultimately lead to the types of places that not only, you know, we want to work at, but the types of places that become ever more profitable, um, that, that have significant, you know, increases in revenue and, and loyalty and retention. So that's, that's my goal for today. Um, my background is as a science, as a immersive design, um, Advisor for some of the top labs mm-hmm. um, that study emotions and bias in in the country and the world. I advise for the psychology lab at Harvard that studies um, bias, and also the psych lab at Northeastern that studies emotions and empathy and how that impacts our choices. Everything from legal cases to you know the way that we. We choose um, um, really moral, simple things in our life. Hmm. So, you know, the the background I bring is one that kind of intersects the middle of uh, neuroscience and corporate learning. And ultimately, you know, helping leaders understand what that impact is and and why they should be, you know, what their return investment is on empathy. Before we, uh, before
0: everyone tunes out after hearing corporate learning, maybe we should uh, quickly (laughs) specify (laughs) that you're not doing the normal (laughs) trainings that everybody's seeing and hates.
2: (laughs) No, I mean, talk about trailblazing, right? I mean, we all, it's interesting because, um, you know, we, we are all acquainted with what trainings can feel like and how awful it can be. Mm. And I believe it doesn't have to be that way. You know, we should be able to be inspired by the way that we learn about each other. Um, And, and yeah, I think that there's a pathway to that. So, you know, the organization that I've created and um, that, you know, is indeed trying to trailblaze in the space of learning is, um, is made to give you something that's very different from what you've had before. And I think very exciting.
0: I, uh, I want to, jump back onto that uh, here in just a second. But I do want to say that uh, with your background in psychology, you'd probably be a really good trader if you ever decided to try to pursue
2: that path. Um, Yeah, I mean, you you could say that. But if you look at my Stark portfolio in the last... 18 months. <laughs> my, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, we're all on a learning curve somewhere. And, uh, you know, maybe right. one of your listeners can, uh, if they, if one of your listeners feels like they really were helped today, then maybe we can, we can sh- share a <laughs> screenshot. <laughs> I can learn we're all open to learning here, but thank you for saying so. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, it's just such a mental game that you probably have a leg up starting if you ever did decide to run down that path, but uh, yeah. going back to the trainings then, um, uh, Dan, I don't know what kind of experience you've had with them. I know I've had to sit and watch some of the ones my wife's done. I've had to do them for years. And one of the really big problems with them that I've seen is that the message just gets stagnant. Like it's the trainings are only designed to just shove information down your throat. and It's the same information. The presentation never changes. You stay with a company for seven years. You're going to see the same training program seven years in a row.
1: Uh, yeah, I definitely had a had a similar experience with all of my corporate training. Uh, they always feel like they're just repackaging the same messages.
0: Right. So, so how does a company keep that message fresh? Keep it engaging? Like, what what are some of the things that they can actually do to try to make this actually something useful and not just a, a an hour nap that people take in the middle of work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. How do trainings become useful and not not a task that a box just needs to be checked is really a great question. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that the we've shared our our immersive experiences with over 10,000 people and over 100 organizations. I probably had personal conversations with, you know, CHROs, so chief, you know, HR officers, chief diversity officers, people who work in culture. Um, I'm, you know, probably hundreds of hundreds of conversations over the last few years and by and large what I have learned is that the reasons that trainings are ineffective is they are leveraged on the idea that giving people facts, statistics, and exercises around concepts is going to change behavior. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that facts, statistics, and exercises are really, really good ways to pass your LSATs or your MCATs. They're really bad ways to change behavior. Anybody who's ever had an argument knows that. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, arguably our country would be in a very different place if, if we knew how to listen to data effectively, right? But we don't. Right. Not how we, you know, there, there's a, the great thing about working you know, between the space of neuroscience and business is I get to know things like if you, there's a study that shows that if you, if, when political opponents talk about um, the data around the thing that they're arguing for, mm-hmm. their opponent listens very poorly to that. But if they tell a personal anecdote, Around that data, hmm. then their opponent's belief in that story that it's true goes way up. Right? So if I were to talk to you about you know, something like gun control, and I was talking to talk to say you know, 20% of, of people who um, are killed with you know guns are, are done so because they are um, you know they're getting their guns from from people who who don't have licenses. That's a statistic mm-hmm. that you have very little resonance with. If I tell you that I have an uncle who accidentally shot someone because it wasn't his gun, it was actually his friend's gun, and his friend didn't have a license, and had he had a license, that would have never happened. And now that person, you know, is in the hospital and will never walk again. Mm -hmm. Which one are you more likely to find to be true? And the interesting thing is, the moment that we add the data on top of that, it actually doesn't increase the believability in my story that much. Right. So, you know learn through experiences we learn through anecdotes and stories and the way that trainings are given are not through experiences anecdotes and stories right they are given through facts and statistics and the problem with facts and statistics is that they are negative 75% of programs out there use negative me- messaging to get their point across and I don't know about you guys but you know the last time someone used negative messaging to try and get me to do something I probably didn't do a damn thing right
0: you make a great point too about the the Difference between personal stories and statistics. Uh, I think it kind of just boils down to, and it's probably the root of like your entire business, but you have no empathy towards those statistics. Statistics are just numbers, and that's the problem. Like when you tell a personal story, now you've suddenly put a face to it, you've put a person behind it, and you've seen how this person has been affected by his story. Like that's a much more powerful message.
2: Exactly, exactly. Right. The thing that Empathable, so our organization is called Empathable, and the thing that I think we're doing that's very different, Uh, you know, how we're applying empathy is by letting you see the world through someone else's eyes just for a few minutes a day, right? Or we can do trainings of 90 minutes, like both are possible, right? But we've received a really significant in-kind donation from one of the country's top app developers. They made the Capital One apps and the MasterCard apps and things like that. And, you know, they've put over $3 million of their human time to create an application for iOS and Android that can work for businesses and teams where you'll be able to walk in the shoes of, you know, a black woman with an MBA working at a Fortune 50 company or an Asian man who's a program director at a tech company and things like that. Right. And by walking in their shoes and seeing enactments of real moments in their life, you know, where the eyes are the camera. And where their words are on the screen, you don't hear their words, you speak them out loud, right? Having that interaction is so much more powerful than being told, this is what it's like to be this person, or this is what it's like to be. That doesn't do anything for us, right? Mm -hmm. If we just give people the experience, a plurality of experiences, right? That's how we learn, through a plurality of experiences. We give people that emotional experience of what it's like to be someone else, even just for a few minutes a day. And we never tell you that you're wrong. We never tell you what to think. We just say, hey, you know, your experience as a human being on this planet is totally valid because it's your experience. So as your experience as an individual, it's completely valid. So, too, is this other person's experience totally, totally valid. And all we want you to do right now is remember that the validity of their experience is also a thing, right? It's just out there like the validity of your experience. And that's what empathy is. There's no right or wrong. It's just understand. It's celebrating. It's celebrating that we have different viewpoints and that people have viewpoints that are going to differ from our own, but that, that actually makes us better and stronger. Right, as organizations even even in the way when we talk about diversification right and that's certainly you know diversifying is the name of the game right in, in in the long game of investing we all know that diversifying obviously is the name of the game why is that well in science there's a word called degeneracy which you know in, in common speak sounds like a bad word but in science it's actually a good word degeneracy means we can get to similar solutions, and let's just say similar solutions being successful solutions through different methods, right? So you know we can we can you know raise the value of our portfolio twenty five percent in in six years by looking mostly at uh, you know conscientious companies or investing uh, mostly in oil and guns, right? Or we can invest mostly. In, um, you know, in larger portfolios or smaller portfolios, right? We can do it with a money manager, or we can be a day trader, there's so many ways we can get there. But all mm-hmm. of those can lead to success. And arguably, being able to embrace those different ways teaches us something about how we can solve problems better. And it's it's hard to grasp in this world because we get so moralistic and so ethical about what is right and what is wrong. But <laughs> we sometimes yeah. forget that this variation of opinion is actually helping us in many ways. It doesn't mean I don't have an opinion about it, by the way, either. But I can tell you right. that variation is something that should be celebrated. So,
0: how does this? Like you said you mentioned that you gave this speech uh, to a bunch of investors at a, 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 a keynote speech, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. How was this uh, uh, received? How is your message received?
2: Um, <laughs> well, I can tell you that a lot of those investors work for, you know, some of the larger financial institutions that we're now, you know, working with. And we're now in discussion mm-hmm. with it because, you know, I think the, the beautiful thing about financial institutions is that the beautiful and the horrific thing, right, about financial institutions. <laughs> yeah, there's a bad side for sure. Yeah. Is is actually the same thing, which is that they're numbers driven, mm-hmm. right? I have a I have a friend who you know spent most of his life at Goldman and Bloomberg, and you know what? And he's he's the guy that you call in to like have the last you know sets of five meetings to close a fifty million dollar deal. Mm. And you know, having a, had a lifetime of of work in those types of organizations, he this is a quote from him. He said to me, "You know, Micah." when it comes to impathable being accepted by financial institutions or not, if it moves the bottom line, they'll throw any amount of money at it, right? And and it's not the money I care about, but it's the return on investment turning into impact that I really care about. I really care about people investing in something that's gonna work for them. Because if it doesn't work, it's gonna create apathy and pushback. And that's what most of the, you know, bias training and sexual harassment training out there is doing. It's creating apathy, you know, and pushback and defensiveness. When what we really wanna be doing is creating curiosity and inspiration and, you know, wanting to hear each other's opinions. And, you know, embracing that different opinions are a good thing. So, you know, by and large, the the impact from sharing with people that are driven by finance is you have to make sure to make that connection between the investment they're making and how it impacts their bottom line. And it behooves us as people that work in science and culture to know how to have that conversation. Right. So what is the, uh, the impact on the bottom
0: line? I am curious to hear this. Yeah.
2: Well, um, you know what you have to do is work as hard as you can. Then close your eyes, and in twenty years, hopes it all works out. Just hope it all works. No. <laughs> <laughs> why, why we, you yep. know, I' Got yeah. that down. No. You know, that, that, that's the plan, isn't it? We're just bearing down and hoping that we can get through this as r. No, I mean the the plan is actually really simple if you think about it. So, performance and how that impacts. You know, profitability, kind of hard to measure. Mm-hmm. Right? It's possible, but it's kind of hard to measure. Retention and turnover and how culture impacts retention and turnover, really, really easy to measure. Mm-hmm. We know so many things about the reasons people leave their jobs. Even though people aren't entirely honest and open in exit surveys, we still know a ton. Mm-hmm. Right? We know that toxic culture is ten times more likely to predict to- turnover then low compensation rates, right? That's an MIT and Sloan management review quote. Mm-hmm. We know that 58% of employees have previously left a job because they didn't feel valued by their boss, right? That's an EY 2021 consulting survey quote. We know that 72% of employees would consider leaving their company if their company displayed less empathy. Hmm. It's really, really interesting how much we know, and I'm going to build a case for you here one step at a time, okay? So the first step... Okay is really understanding that empathy is one of the most important factors in whether someone is actually engaged at work or not. That's really important to establish, right? And I hope that I can give you okay. 10 more statistics, but I'll spare you the numbers. Right? I just told you myself, data is nothing. So. Yeah. Just please, yeah. please
0: tell me all the hard facts and skip the personal story.
2: Yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, but, you know, I can say that, you know, six in 10 employees would be willing to take less pay if their employer showed empathy, which I think is, you know, something right in between facts and statistics. Because just think about that, right? Like, we mm-hmm. think that we're so capitalistic in every single way, but when it comes down to it, the way that we feel at the end of the day and whatever is written on our gravestone at the end of our lives has so much to do with how people feel about us. There's a great TED talk I watched 15 years ago about, you know, an ambulance, uh, what do you call it, an EMT who was in the back of the ambulance, and he's heard hundreds of people say their last words to him, and, you know, a lot of those people, the majority of those people, those last words had to do with asking him to talk to certain people in their lives.
0: Right. Like, right. It wasn't, I wish I worked harder. It wasn't, tell, tell my boss
2: that I'm going to be late tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs>
1: We'll be in call
2: exactly. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, can we find out if this is PTO or not, right? Yeah, like, right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. That's, that's not where we're at. Where we are is is it's about relationships. Mm-hmm. And and we under we underestimate the amount that people are willing to do for a company in terms of loyalty and in terms of relationships in their in their work life when their those relationships feel psychologically safe. When they feel, you know, which I I know is a weird word for people, but it just, it, what it means is being able to ask a question and feel like you're not going to be laughed at for asking a question and everyone's going to think you're dumb and kick you out. It means being able to depend on each other, right?
0: And I want you to remember that statement when we get to a
2: later point in this interview. Okay, you got yes. it. I'll come back yes, to it. Yes. All right. <laughs> we'll so first part of our case here, we, we've built a case that empathy is really important. Mm-hmm. So here's a really interesting um, statistic from Business Solver. In 2019, 250 CEOs were interviewed and they were asked, how important do they think empathy is to a company's bottom line? And 97% of CEOs said, empathy is essential to our company's bottom line. Of those of those companies, of those CEOs that were interviewed, 90% of their employees at those companies said that they thought that their empathy was undervalued. Mm-hmm. Right? Just like mind blowing, yeah. right? These CEOs, know empathy is really important, but their employees feel like their empathy is undervalued. So what that's teaching us is that we all really suck at empathy. <laughs> right. Right. But the reason we suck <laughs> at it is because it's defined wrong in the dictionary. Empathy is not about understanding someone else's feelings and it's not about Truly walking in someone else's shoes, even though empathable helps you walk in other people's shoes. I can tell you, I'll be the first to tell you, we'll never really be able to understand anybody else. We'll never really be able to walk in anyone's shoes entirely. We barely understand how we feel about things. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So empathy is not about that. It's about the celebration of the validity, right? I've said it before, but I'll say it again, the celebration of the validity of each other's experiences, right? Celebrating that mm-hmm. we have different viewpoints, different backgrounds that create those viewpoints. And if we can feel heard and understood in those, that's how we create the empathy that we need. That's how CEOs, managers, and leaders can create the empathy that they need on their team, right? So that's, that's the second step, right? One is understanding mm-hmm. that this is really important. The second is understanding we need to be able to learn empathy because it's a muscle that we train. It's not a skill we're born with or, you know, something in our DNA or a talent that we have or don't have, right? Like one accountant once told me his wife calls him an empathy desert. I don't know if they're still married, but that's, that's not how it works. Not how it works. Yeah, empathy empathy that's a great i'm gonna remember that one yeah yeah <laughs> just don't quote me on it please in case he's listening. no no no, no. <laughs> right but when it comes down to it this is this is something really important to realize we train the empathy muscle by walking in the shoes as much as we can through immersive perspectives of other people being willing to immerse ourselves in perspectives others okay all right great so we know that empathy is really important we know it can be trained mm-hmm Here's where we are today. Here's where we are. These are the emotions of now. The emotions of now is that in the Great Resignation, right, we know that there is a 25% turnover rate last year, mm-hmm. right? But we also know that of that turnover rate, it wasn't equal across all races and genders and sexual orientations and identity points, right? In other words, hmm. not everybody left or, or, or quit their jobs, you know, or were fired equally. There's actually a, a variation there. And, you know, even though I don't have the exact number for, in front of me, I can tell you that it's something, you know, in many, in many companies, it's something like a 10% differential. In other words, statistically significant, we can say a statistically very significant differential. And why mm-hmm. is that? It's because retention is quantifiable. So let's, let's do the math here, right? Let's say that, you know, for a 10, according to HBR, right, for a 10,000 person company improvements in empathy and belonging would result in an annual savings of more than $52 million a year. Wow. So, yeah. Right? That's, Big that's significant. Yes. <laughs> All right, Now right, let's talk about a company that we're acquainted with. All right, so this company has an average salary for their employees of about $80,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Okay? And in this company, there are a certain amount of employees that left. Mm-hmm. Right. Every year there's a certain amount of boys that leave. But the difference is significant in the delta between white, straight, heterosexual, able-bodied men that left and everybody else. It's just different. And and by and large, in pretty much every company, white straight men are gonna be your proxy. Right? Like because they have the lowest turnover rates across industry. Mm-hmm. Just just a fact. Right. So okay. So We're talking about, you know, 13% of white straight men left this company in one year. And 27% of white women, black women, Hispanic women, Asian women, black men, Asian men, right? Um, Neurodiverse people, people who have disabilities, right? Anyone who falls into marginalized groups, groups that are not necessarily white straight men, right? There's this big difference. There's this delta of 14%. Hmm. The annual turnover cost of that is based on how much it costs to rehire someone every year, right? So, so if it costs like ten months of salary, which you know, according to um, uh, SHRM, right, the the HR institute, it costs about ten months of salary these days to rehire someone. So you just do the math, right? If the average salary is about eighty thousand dollars, and it costs about ten months of salary to find someone else and there's a delta of 14% between one group and another group, then you know exactly how much the company is turning over based on a lack of inclusion and belonging. Because that 13% of white men leaving the company also captures the 13% of the marginalized people that are leaving the company. But if the marginalized people are leaving the company in a drove of 27%, then that additional 14% of marginalized people leaving the company is not based on you know, competitive salary, geographical location changes. right? That's already captured in the first 13% of that 27%. That 14%, that additional 14%, is only covering a lack of inclusion, belonging, and empathy. And that equates for this particular company to about $16 million a year. So there you go. The lack of empathy for this pretty small company, much smaller than that HBR study, right, is about sixteen million dollars a year. And that could change, right? By and It's not going to change again through facts, statistics, and exercises like the ones that we're getting in our typical trainings. It's going to change by immersing people into new perspectives in a way that never makes them feel like they're a bad person and allows them to celebrate the differences that are out there. And that's what Empathable does. That is fascinating. And
0: also kind of sounds a bit idealistic. Uh, do you have? Do you get a lot of pushback from people? Are people uh, willing to, to jump on? I mean, you have data to show that this makes sense. You have stories to show that that should make people more likely to want to give this a try. But it does kind of sound like, uh, like everybody holding hands and singing Kumbaya a little bit, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, that's what a robot like you would say. It does. It is. I think it sounds perfectly <laughs> reasonable.
0: It sounds amazing, but you have to get the buy-in from everybody. And uh, my experience with that has been it's very difficult to get everybody to agree on on that. Like changing a culture from a company is very, very difficult to do. And it requires a lot of time
2: and effort. It's a top-down affair for sure. Yes. It's a top-down affair for sure. And that's that's the thing. You know, money saved is not necessarily going to be a P&L item. On on the spreadsheet of your CFO, mm-hmm. right? Because on, on some level, your CFO, I completely agree with you. It might be even nice for your CFO to lose a hundred and eighty k employee and replace them with an eighty k employee who just came out of college, right? Who can do the same function in quotes, right? But the problem with that, and your COO and your CHRO should be really aware of this. They should they should actually understand this. The problem is it's going to ruin your team right? By losing that senior person who comes with years of experience, who, who understands things, who's given you years of loyalty. It's going to ruin your team. You know, you're going to lose your best people. And frankly, you're going to have to explain to your board why you're not meeting your retention strategy of qualified people of color, women, and LGBTQ plus employees. So, you know, whether or mm-hmm. not we want to be idealistic about it or not, I think when it comes down to it, we live in a world and in a time where these numbers matter to the public. Right? and it's going to affect your ability to hire new people if people if, if if groups from different identities and different genders are not interested in working at your company and that's a that's public knowledge, right? At the very at the very least, mm-hmm. it's gonna lead to a lot more of an expense in your hiring costs. And at the very most, it's gonna lead to class action lawsuits because eventually it's gonna catch up with you. You know, and it's gonna do so not because people are explicitly trying to be racist or sexist. That's not what I'm saying. You know, by and large, most people in companies aren't explicitly biased. These are about social mistakes that we need to understand in order for us all to feel kind of like we have a sense of belonging with each other. Right. So like the simple thing here to understand is that when you're talking about assessing your retention and its cost, we should be asking ourselves, you know, and as investors, we should be checking in, you know, whether it's on the news or for institutional investors, really checking in with, with leadership, you know, are they, are they measuring their delta in retention? Are they even doing that? You know, is your C-suite aware of it? And what is their plan on closing the retention gap? Because what I'm not saying here is that, you know, we're going to close a 14% retention delta in, in a year, right? But what we need to do is, start, you know, as the empathy score of a company goes up, the turnover rate of that delta should go down, right? And that, that's what we're looking for. So year over year, we should see that line moving in the right direction.
0: Now, you've worked with some pretty big name companies uh, looking at the the
2: web uh the the company's website the
0: empathable dot com uh like i see like cisco meta um, board yeah um did you was there any like pushback from you like trying to uh um, when you when you implemented this program or was everybody like from the top down like fully on board with this and if so like what sort of results did they see
2: yeah absolutely so pushback is Something that happens when you tell people what to think fact mm-hmm. um, something happens when when you know you t- you tell people that they're that they're um you know doing things in in a bad way, and that can happen in a really explicit way, like you know telling them outright, but it can also happen in really subtle ways and I think the beauty of sharing immersive experiences where you're walking the shoes of other people is that we're never saying you know, you're doing things wrong. We're never saying that you're, you're a bad person. I can give you a really great example. We were once sharing with a pretty conservative body of people. Um, and we were sharing a scene that had to do with the way that certain, you know, certain groups feel that other groups take up a lot of space on the sidewalk. Oh, who <laughs> oh, those people? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, And the thing is, um, you know, in different countries and in different cities, opinions are going to differ. But that's the whole point, right? We all have different life perspectives. And this is not, I want to start this conversation by even saying, I'm not here to tell you that one person is right or wrong. I'm here to share the perspective, right, that there are a lot of people out there that feel like a lot of other people don't move out of the way when they're walking down the street. Mm-hmm. and uh, during this session where we were sharing the immersive experience of someone of watching someone have that experience of someone not moving out of the way and then just saying you know these people never move out of the way for us this person in the session said you know i think that was rude i think we all move out of the way for each other i don't get it we all have a fair chance what's the big deal what do you think we said to that person right what do you think most trainings would say to that person you're wrong most trainings would say well here's why it isn't here's what you don't understand and look at all this data and statistics right and what have you done you have created someone who has turned their brain off to wanting to learn because you have told them in essence that they're a bad person yeah right what we did is we said thank you so much for sharing that perspective we really appreciate it and the thing is we're not saying it in this sort of lip service way we really mean it like they have a different Mm -hmm. opinion than we do But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be grateful that they're willing to be vulnerable enough or that they're allowing their emotions to have them express something. Because not saying anything can actually be a lot more harmful than actually saying what you think. Like in order to bring our unconscious thoughts to life, we need to be able to speak them sometimes. So what we did is we said, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. We really, really appreciate it. And one week later, as we often do, we had our next session. And we had a check-in first, and we said, "Hey, how has your week been? You know what's been going on." And this person said to us, "You know, I've been thinking a lot about that scene because I still think it was really rude, but I do notice it's changed the way that I've been walking down the street." <laughs> yes, you know, success. That's right. Changed. That's changed.
0: Can yeah. We Can you do a scene at the grocery store uh, and people using their carts and hogging the aisles? <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, we're going to affect change and we're going to start at the places that matter <laughs> yeah. before we spend too much time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, just, yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to derail you no, there. No, the
2: thing is, I mean, you're kidding, I realize. You know, but, you know, to to to, to just in all seriousness... We have ideals about how we wish society would go. And mm-hmm. those ideals are based on the experiences that we've had in our lives. And it is totally valid to want other people to understand your perspective. And often when they do, you don't even need them to agree with you. You just want to make sure that mm-hmm. they get it, right? And that they get it in a way where they're not like, oh, yeah, sure. That's what you think, but whatever, you're a jerk. No, it's, oh, that's what you think. And I completely Hear you, and I completely see that that's your viewpoint. I have a different viewpoint because I come from a different background, but I'm not shutting you out, right? So mm-hmm. the answer, in short, is yeah. Like Dan Kyle, let's like <laughs> let's make that scene, right? Let's give people an understanding. Um, I, you know, to, to give you an even more extreme example, I was talking to you know one of the big banks, someone there who has spent his whole career as a, as a senior manager, who mm-hmm. advises the ultra-high net worth people in his portfolio and where they can be, um, you know, providing generosity, right? Where they can be philanthropic and how they can be philanthropic. But he's also managing a lot of their wealth. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, you know, after we got to know each other and we were having dinner and, you know, somewhere after after the second chorus, I think, you know, we all loosened up a bit and he said, Micah, could Impathible ever make an experience about what it feels like an ultra-wealthy person to lose all of their money over the course of 10 years because they're investing badly. And then he got into deeper stories with me about someone that oh, wow. knew that, you know, his this person's um, partner, you know, wife called this investment bank's um, you know, this this key contact a number of times said, you know, my husband's in Vegas, um, I know what he's doing. You know, these are these are six and you know, high six figure days that are going into the red. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this investment manager can't do a darn thing about it because that's not, that's not his job. He can't tell this person it's an advisor, right? You can't put a block right. someone spending their own money. And it, it's devastating, right? Because for this investment manager, he's not only seeing this person lose all his money, but he's seeing how that is affecting every single person in his what in his life, right? His wife isn't calling because she's worried about being poor, his wife's calling because her life's falling apart. Right. So, you know, if someone's going into think about how they're going to spend their wealth and they can walk in the shoes of someone who's done it in an irresponsible way, you know, what kind of wellness can that create for an entire group of people around him? We need to stop being, you know, partisan or political when it comes to empathy empathy is something that we all deserve because we all come from exactly where we come from that
0: i love that statement um you just sold me 100 percent on everything that you're doing mm. uh the fact that you're not excluding somebody just because they have perceived more benefits than the rest of society the fact that you're treating everyone's experiences is something to that we can all benefit from uh I mean, I've actually, ooh. it's inclusive, right? Ooh, I'm getting goosebumps. That is true inclusivity. Yeah. And I think no. that a lot of the programs out
2: there don't have that. Yeah. I think, I think one of the biggest challenges, you know, and this is, this is where I'll get into a bit of a, you know a personal opinion with you. And I hope, mm-hmm. I hope that you know, we can be seen really as a personal opinion, you know, but I think we come from a generation of grandfathers and great grandfathers throughout the world, not just in the States, right? That, yep. That, you know, had a very different idea about the way that the world needed to be. And, you know, many of them had to go directly or indirectly through war. And it's, you know, in in many ways, it's understandable that if you have life or death situations, your bandwidth for being able to deal with certain emotions lessens, you know, so we're, we're going through an emotional evolution in our times. I know emotions can sometimes feel like a bad word, but, you know, EQ is what corporates use to make it a better word. But when it comes down to it, we are going through an emotional evolution. We see it when we sit down to Thanksgiving. The way that we talk about our feelings is very different than generations behind us. You mean not talk about their feelings? I'm not no. talking about our feelings, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. You stuff so- it into a ball and you shove it down and you drown it in bourbon.
0: Yeah,
1: right. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, the challenge is that our entire lives, our brains are going to live inside of our body. We actually don't know what's going on in the world at all. We're predicting, we're making constant predictions about what's happening in the world while we're actually, you know, literally in our head. We're not building a model of the world. We're building a model of our senses, which are trying to figure out what's going on in the world. Great. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if that's the case, then it means that when we're told that a certain emotion or set of emotions don't belong, it's not like our mind has a specific spot in our, you know, our brain doesn't have a, a compartment where we hold the lack of inclusion and belonging that we feel of anger or the lack of inclusion that, or belonging that we feel as a woman, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're both categories, but these categories are created by society. Our mind is just feeling at the end of the day, I don't belong at this particular moment for this particular reason. But when it comes down, I don't—I don't feel like I belong, and that's where the pushback and the apathy comes from. We have to remember, in all of the trainings that we're giving, and all the way that we're trying to teach people to have more empathic cultures, which is ultimately what makes companies thrive, which is ultimately what drives the economy. That belonging is about all the aspects that belong can be addressing, which means the emotional part too.
0: We've—we've uh, we've talked a little bit about how this—this uh, this ties back into the. the... Business world uh, with retention rates and other uh, things like that. I'm curious if there's a correlation between the people that want to keep work from home and the companies that score lower on retention and empathy. If there's a correlation between the two,
2: yep. Yeah. Well, you know, we we quantify what we can measure, mm-hmm. and that, you know, what we measure, what we what we can measure, we we end up wanting to you know draw conclusions from. So if a big change happens, then you know, Gartner and all of these you know HR organizations that that are good at measuring things start measuring things, and we have all these feelings and conclusions about it. But you know, here's an here's an interesting counter argument for that. Okay. So in 2016, Google did a massive study to try and understand what makes teams great. Yeah, and they they looked at. Everything that they could possibly look at, they poked holes in everything that they could possibly poke holes in, right, in terms of what makes a team great, right? Was it, um, you know, higher pay? Was it introverts in, you know, working with introvert bosses or extroverts and introverts together? Was it Mm -hmm. levels of education? And what they found out is that none of that seemed to matter. None of that made a team great. But rather, it was a series of group norms. What we would call in like common speak a vibe, right? Like a team has a certain vibe and it's or or you know, rituals, unspoken rituals. And if a team had really good norms, really good rituals and a vibe, then regardless of education or salary, they would perform really well across tasks. And the most well-educated, most well-paid team with a bad vibe, right, with a bad group norm. Perform Mm -hmm. really poorly across task tasks, right? And the number one most important feature of what created a team with good group norms, is, again, psychological safety. You know, psychological safety is the ability to speak up and ask a question and feel like you're going to be included. It leads to the dependability that we're looking for. It leads to a sense of structure that we can trust that we can make a plan and get it done. You know, it leads to a sense of meaning because, you know, we need to know this work that we're intrinsically motivated to do it and it matters to us. And it leads to the impact that you know ultimately does align with organizational outcomes because companies that have you know diverse teams have 2.3% higher cash flow they like have 20% boost in revenue when they have diverse management and they have an over 40% uh, higher profit when they have a diverse board right when they have a board that has people from different cultures different genders mm-hmm. like so like the psychological safety being there absolutely aligns with the organizational outcomes that are finance driven. Like we're totally in line there. But here's the thing. You cannot have a psychologically safe team that doesn't feel inclusive.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You just can't, right? If we're in the middle of a business meeting and someone speaks up and says something unintentionally sexist, and then, you know, Kyle says, Hey, sorry to interrupt, man. But actually what I found that you said right now, I've actually found that really sexist. And you know, that, that kind of bothered me. And then the next thing that happens is crickets chirping, right? Or someone says, hey, we've only got five minutes left. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about this another time, right? That's a team that starts to fall apart. And those are never things that get reported to HR. They're never things that are in exit surveys, but that's how teams, like this is the way that the world crumbles is like a thousand million little comments like that or people not knowing how to speak Mm -hmm. up for the rights of others every single day, right? At every single organization. So the trickle down is huge. I would argue... That this is so much more important than the remote versus hybrid versus, you know, in-person conversation. We're putting a lot of focus on that. We're saying it's harder for people to make connections because they're hybrid. And that might be true, but it also gives us the opportunity to define more valuable ways of making connections, more more impactful ways of connecting, because we can do that. Like, we, we are changing. Technology is changing us, and we are changing technology. But that gives us the opportunity to also leverage technology to be able to create more empathy in a remote world. Like, it's not an excuse. You know, it it, it needs to be an opportunity. And the companies that do it well, the companies that learn how to teach empathy in a way that is through experience and through, you know, empathy uh, of walking into each other's shoes, those are the ones that will survive and thrive through the remote and hybrid world. It's just, it's too easy of a fallback.
0: My concern with that would be is when I see companies that are fighting, like Tesla, trying to get people to come back to work, like he's doesn't like the work from home, he wants the people to come back to the office, but the people don't want to go back to the office. Like Is that underlying a, a an issue within the company workforce that these people would rather spend their time at home versus uh, getting fulfillment and enjoyment from being physically at an office?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Let's celebrate that. Right. That, that's the whole point. Like some of us are going to want to be in office four to five days a week. Some of us not at all. And some of us two days a week. Mm-hmm. And do we feel supported in that choice? And, you know, are the organizations that we're working for going out of their way to create a program that I mean, we don't have 20 days in a week. We don't need 20 variables, I right? <laughs> We need five variables. It's not that hard, right? We have one-day-a-week people, two-day-a-week people, and so on and so forth. So, you know, does a company have to bend over backwards? No. They just have to create a program that allows for that variation to be celebrated. You know, too much variation... It's a bad thing.
0: I think the bigger problem is when they just shut it down immediately and make you feel like an idiot for speaking up. Like you talked about with the meetings, where like somebody's afraid to speak their mind. Like, right? Like I can point to a recent example with uh, Meta, and this was the one that I wanted you to put a pin in before you can come back to before we, we wrapped up. Yeah. But uh, you know, people asking Zuckerberg about uh, uh, benefits, or maybe it was—I think it was a vacation. Yeah, having a day off, and he. He uh, made the person feel like shit for even thinking to ask a kind of question.
2: Yep. And, you know, the trickle down of that is this conversation. That shows me a
0: CEO that uh, doesn't, doesn't value empathy. And that's something that I would look at as a red flag now after having this conversation with you when trying to pick my investments for the future. For sure.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the trickle down of bad culture. Maybe this is one of the, you know, the last things that I can leave us with today, because I think a lot of, you know, managers and, and executives are, are thinking, well, Micah, you know, I, I love this idea of creating empathy. And I see that Empathable is doing that, but I don't have any time. You know, I'm managing. I'm managing, you know, 14 managers who manage 20 people each. You know, we, I, I manage hundreds of people indirectly. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you expect from me? You know, and I've gotten this more or less from, from, from folks who work pretty up at high up in finance. And what I say to them is I, I want you to think of it a little bit like a hedge mm-hmm. is thought about, in terms of volatility, right? Whether it's the VXX or the VIX or whatever you want to think of it, right? But think of it as a hedge. And what I mean by that is this. If we come into work every day and I say, Dan, Kyle, like, how's it going? You know, like, Mm -hmm. how's your family? And simple questions, right? But, But authentically, authentically asked, right? And you take 20 seconds to answer that question. And you feel like in those 20 seconds, I've really heard you, then What we're doing is we're creating a foundation of a relationship that at the moment in time when inevitably in the future, I will say something to offend you. Inevitably in the future, I will make a social mistake. I won't mean to. That's why it's a mistake. It'll be unintentional. Right. But by accident, at some point, because I don't have the life that you have, because we've had different experiences, you know, maybe I'll make some sort of joke. And, you know, that joke will be at the expense of someone that has been near and dear to you in your life. And I didn't even realize that I did it at that moment. Our psychologically, psychological safety, our connection could be broken forever. But if I have given you mm-hmm. the feeling that I want to listen to you, if I have actually practiced empathy with you over and over again. Then you are so much more likely to say to me at the end of the meeting, right? Like, hey, Micah, I'm just telling you this because, you know, I, I want you to know, like what you said before. Like, yeah, I have like this person in my family and you know that affects them. And, you know, I'm, like just, just so you know, like I know you didn't mean it that way, but just so you know. And then I can say, oh, dude, thank you. Like I had no idea. Right? And then we go on feeling included and belonging with each other forever. Whereas if we didn't take that time, right? If we, I've never took the time to ask you those questions, then we run a big risk that I'm going to say that thing. You're not going to want to speak up about it because you never felt like I listened to you in the first place. There's no history of, of
0: compassion between the two, or at least knowing each other or taking any sort of mm-hmm. effort. Like It doesn't take much time. It's such a good point.
1: I, I actually learned to, to call it the emotional bank account. Like, oh. It, an, uh positive interactions and bonding experiences add to the account, mm-hmm. and that big thing that you say that offends me is going to make a withdrawal. But if there've been enough deposits, we're we're still good. You can you can take that withdrawal.
2: Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, it, it is. You know, I call it a hedge because at the time, like, it, I think it's such a good metaphor because volatility. Mm-hmm has to do with unpredictability, right? We don't know what's going to happen. There's too much unpredictability, so there's too much volatility. That's what happens when you make social mistakes. The inside of our head is buzzing and saying, "Was he? did he mean to be rude? Was that purposefully offensive? I don't think that was purposefully. What's going on? I'm, I'm kind of feeling, was she hurt? We're in the room together. I don't know how she feels about this. I know about her brother. Right. Does he know about her? All these things are happening in our mind. It's a very, it's like a storm. In that moment, what we need to, 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 Fare through that storm is the hedge of feeling like there's someone who has made those deposits, right, in the emotion bank, as you put it.
0: There's another side benefit to that too, and that's where the you may learn some of those things that would set somebody off, that somebody is more sensitive to. If you took, you know, the twenty seconds every few days just to come by and say, you know, how are things
2: going, so you may not even ever even be in that mm-hmm. position. Yep, exactly yeah you may not even ever be in that position and that's what we're going for here right we're going for teams that can stay whole because a ceo of a company of teams that can stay whole is going to have the absolute best position in the s&p right that you could ever have like right, that that's what it comes down to like that's what it comes down to at least in the in the space of finance right is, is understanding that these things are not uh this is not soft correlations this is like hard data and you know and and it comes down to the the feeling of like do i feel valued here or not because if i don't i'm out i might not be out right now i might be out when when it's best for me and you'll never know cuz i'll never say it in an exit interview but instead mm-hmm. if i feel in i might be in for life and what is the value of that on you like as a boss that might be you know two extra weeks of your vacation because you right. know you have someone working under you who's got it right these are just, these are things that affect us in the smallest and biggest ways. Uh, within with the publicly traded companies you've
0: worked with, uh, Cisco, Meta, Ford, Altrera, which one do you think has like fully embraced this process uh, uh, more so than the others? Like which one is like really like went into it a hundred percent, all on board?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunism, and you know, and what I will say is that the yeah. answer is in writing and it's in the media. You know, I know that the media is polarized and we love to trash people these days, but if, if things are being said, they're being said for a reason. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. And you know, when you're making trades, go on Glassdoor. Glassdoor. glass door. You know what I mean? If, yeah. People are reporting it. You'll, you'll see, yeah. The, the writing is on the wall. The glass, the wall of the glass door. There you go. I know
0: exactly what you're saying. Yep. Wink, wink. Yep,
2: yep. <laughs> oh, fantastic! <laughs> Thank you
1: so much for joining us today, Micah. This has been a really great conversation.
0: Wait, wait, hang on, Dan. Before you wrap up, we need to we need to give Micah a chance to, to tell everyone where you can find yeah. us.
1: I was gonna ask.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. it's a running yeah, gag. I'm- sorry. Yeah, to- <laughs> <laughs> All right, no fine yeah, you can find us at empathable.com, right? Like empathy plus able minus the Y. So Empathable dot com is is our website. You can you know um, sign up for our newsletter. We have some great blogs that talk about culture. We have a blog that talks about retention. So anything that I shared today, you know, you can read about on our blog, which is on our website. Um, please feel free to sign up. We're going to keep having great information out there. And if you want a demo of our experience, you know, if you want to share that with your with your DEI or HR or culture leader and say, hey, I heard this great mm-hmm. you know interesting interesting theory of change. About how we can be making, you know, radical change in our company without worrying about changing the radicals, you know, then, then, you know, share it with them and and see a little bit of the experience for yourself. Yeah. Really encourage you. radical yeah.
0: change without changing the radicals. I love that.
2: All right, guys. Well, it was great <laughs> being with you. Thank you for your time. I was Fantastic.
0: Oh, thank you so much for joining. I'm glad we, uh, glad we decided to put this one together because this has been fantastic.
1: Fantastic. All right. We got to close up shop, folks. Thanks for sticking around to the end. We hope you had a good time. Check out uh, Micah at Impathable.com. We'll be back at you soon with some more exciting episodes. But until then, happy trades. Bye, everybody.